Let's hear from the Bible again, this time from Luke chapter 14 and verse 15 onwards. In verse 13, Jesus has said, But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. But one of those at the table with him heard this, and he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all, began, they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just got married so I cannot come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundations and is not able to finish it, everyone will see it. Everyone who sees it will, will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build but was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off, and he will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any one of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Before Christmas last year, five-year-old Alex Nash had an invitation to a friend's birthday party. It was to be held at a dry ski slope near Plymouth. He was keen to go, and Alex's parents accepted the invitation on his behalf, but then realised that they double-booked. 
Alex was supposed to be with his grandparents that day. What to do? Who do you let down? The grandparents or a friend? In the end, the grandparents got priority. I don't know what Alex made of that, but it's the grandparents he went to anyway. And Alex missed the party. But his parents didn't tell the friend's mother that he wasn't coming. And when his friend's mother, Julie Lawrence, turned up at the ski slope and Alex didn't show up and they waited for him and he still didn't come, she was upset and annoyed. She felt that Alex's parents could at least have contacted her They had her phone number, they could have rung or texted or something to say uh, that Alex wasn't coming. So she responded by sending them an invoice for the cost of Alex's place at the party on the dry ski slope. It was a proper invoice in a brown envelope, charging them £15.95p as a no-show fee, Uh, according to the verbal contract that had been established between them, that Alex would come to the party and uh, that money would be spent on his behalf. Alex's parents refused to pay it. And apparently, they were threatened with legal action in the small claims court to recover the money. At which point you begin to wonder whether the whole thing hasn't got a little bit out of hand. Legal advice was that it wasn't the kind of money that would be recoverable legally in any way, anyway. But I suspect that Judy Lawrence wanted to make a fairly forceful point. And she did, because it got into the national news. And you have to admit that, I know, remember discussing this with other parents and then talking about how annoyed they are that they invite my child's friend to this party and not only do they not show up, but they didn't text or ring or bother to say it wasn't coming. And afterwards, oh, you know, just didn't feel like it. Or, yeah, sorry, we, we had something else on and we, we just didn't get around to it. The sense of annoyance and frustration that there is. It wouldn't have cost a great deal for Alex's parents to ring or text it to say he wouldn't come. Particularly as they knew in advance, it wasn't just a last minute thing. Their failure to do so could only be construed as rude. I don't suppose for a moment that Alex will get an invitation to that particular friend's birthday party next year. Jesus' parable of the wedding banquet is all about invitations that aren't accepted. A wealthy man prepares a lavish, massive banquet, only to find at the last minute that none of the guests he invited wanted to come. They couldn't be bothered. They had other, better things to do. No mobile phones in those days, of course, so communication was a lot more complicated and protracted. The guests would have received written invitations well in advance. And the practice among well-to-do Wealthy, influential people in those days was to send out a servant immediately before the event just to issue a courteous, small reminder. You had this invitation. It's happening. You are coming, aren't you? It's rather like your dentist ringing to say, you've got this appointment tomorrow. Please don't forget. Do turn up. Otherwise, we'll charge you. They don't say this, but the implications will charge you for the missed appointment. 
In those days, if you, if you sent out a servant with a reminder of this event that you were putting on, that was just a little extra touch to let the guests know how important you were and how significant the event was, that you, you had that kind of wealth to spare someone to go round and just, just to let people know that this was not an event to be missed. It was an event that you were invited, it was expected that you were to come, unless you had an extremely pressing reason not to be there, rather like, you know, the kind of reasons that you have to give if you want to miss a day at school now. It's got to be someone's died or, you know, something drastic like that. But none of the guests, none of the guests wanted to come. They all began to make excuses And not just, oh, I looked outside, it was a bit dark and cold and wet. One, I've just bought a field. I'm I'm sorry, I I need to look it over. I I, I can't make your party. Please, please have me excused. Somebody else, I I just bought five yoke of oxen. I can't wait to go out and just test them and and see whether I've made a good investment or not. Because if there's a problem, I need to to sort it out straight away with, with the vendor. Somebody else had just got married and so had other things on his mind. Now you have to ask yourself, in the grand scheme of things, which is more important? Invitation to a party? Or long-term investments like acquiring land, purchasing livestock? getting married to your life partner, in, in the balance of things, which, which counts as more? Surely, actually, wait, isn't, it, isn't it these things? The important transactions, the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with? This is, this is just a party. And, and yeah, may, maybe these things are important, but are they good enough reasons for turning down the invitation at the last minute? After all, the field will still be there the day after, won't it? The oxen won't have died in the interim. They'll still be there to try out the following day. Hopefully the wife will still be around the following morning as well. But as far as the host is concerned, all that food, all that preparation, all that hard work was for that particular evening. It couldn't be held over. It couldn't be put off till the following week. It was then and it needed to happen now. And so for the host, whatever else all these other people were doing, nothing mattered as much as as the party. And all the work and the investment and the effort he'd put into it. It was all going to be wasted. Hence the frantic search for guests. Anyone who happens to be in town or passing by in the neighbourhood is persuaded, cajoled into coming, so that the master's house will be full and all that food will be eaten. Bully them into coming. Find the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. People who never get an invitation to a party in their life. And bring them and let them have the party of a lifetime. I tell you, the host says, none of those who were originally invited will get to taste a morsel of my food. But it will be eaten by all those I can persuade to come. And so strangers, the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame, they are all the unexpected beneficiaries of the lack of consideration shown by the original guests invited to the feast. Because for the host, 
at that point in time, nothing matters more than that his food shouldn't go to waste. You can't stick it in the freezer and hold it over to next week. He couldn't care less about his friend's field. Not bothered about his friend's oxen. Doesn't have a lot of time for his friend's wife now, either. And it wasn't just that he'd spent all that money and it was all going to be wasted. It's a question of pride. The humiliation. The sense of being let down. The the rudeness shown to him. Throwing a party. Nobody comes. What does that do to you? And maybe that's why he was so concerned that his house should be full. And for those who ended up coming, it wasn't just the social event of the year. It was the party of a lifetime. And Jesus, of course, is telling this story about himself. Because he's like the servant sent out to people to say, God's kingdom's coming. The invitation is there. God's throwing a party to celebrate and welcome you to his kingdom. Won't you come? And people didn't. At least the people who you thought should have been on the guest list didn't. The religious leaders. Those who were God's servants. Those who should have been top of the invitation list. They weren't going to come. They didn't respond to the invitation. And so instead, and you see this in the Gospels as you you look at Jesus' ministry, it was the most vulnerable members of society. It was the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. They welcomed the kingdom of God with open arms and had their lives changed immeasurably for the better as a result. I wonder whether the excuses offered in the parable are there in the parable because they are the kind of things that that Jesus found were getting in the way of people responding to the invitation to the kingdom. You don't find that in the Gospels. You don't see people saying, well, I'm not going to follow you, Jesus, because I've just got married, or I've just bought a field, or I've just got some oxen. But whether the parable gives us an insight into where people's priorities lay when it came to following Jesus, or buying that field, or farming that land with those oxen, or actually, you know, I've got wedding plans next year, and so all this stuff about following Jesus can't really be on my agenda at the moment. Were they too wrapped up in the latest business deal? Were they too involved with their families to be distracted by an invitation into God's kingdom? It may be so. There was a man who said, can I go and say goodbye to my parents first and then I'll come and follow you? Or can I go and bury my father? There were reasons why people, I'd like to follow you, Lord, but just, just not yet. Not quite ready. It's not really convenient. And again, you you weigh up the balance of importance. You know, in in an agricultural uh, society, what is more important than the field that's going to be your livelihood for the coming months and years and decades? What is more important, actually, than making sure that the oxen that are going to plough that field for you are, are really, you know, good quality animals? 
If you depend on farming for your livelihood, what's more important than inspecting a field or having some auction that you just bought? And, you know, if work is important, then, gentlemen, your wife is even more important, isn't she? Yeah. Right answer. Yet Jesus gets really provocative here. Yeah, all that might have its place, but nothing, nothing is more important than the kingdom. Nothing comes close. Nothing is more important than following him. He claims first place before loyalty to parents, before devotion to your wife, before looking after your children, before standing alongside your brothers and sisters. All have to take second place to following him. Because he says, if you want to follow me, you've got to, you've got to hate your parents, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters. That's really, really harsh. Puts it in stark terms. Loving him means hating your family, even hating your own life. It's hyperbolic language. Jesus isn't saying that we have to fill our hearts with hate for those who would otherwise be our nearest and dearest. But with shocking language, he is saying that they can't be more important than he is. Our own lives can't be more important to us than he is. And that still is a really, really harsh thing to say. Uncompromising, difficult. And you can see why he offended so many people, actually, at the time. Because there were some people who walked out on their families to follow him. And the, the disruption that that caused, and the pain that that caused, and, and the confusion that that caused, and the question, you know, how can, how can this person claim the loyalty of, of my children, or my brother and sister, or members of my family, how can he take them away out of the economic unit is the family? I always feel sorry for Zebedee. When Jesus comes along the, the beach and says to James and John, you two, come and follow me. And they leave their father Zebedee in the boat and follow him. What does that do to their dad? How does he carry on making a living as a fisherman, as an old man, if his sons have walked out? And so we look at these words of Jesus and say, he can't mean that, can he? But there's a sense in which, well, yes, he did, because he did it. You can see it. He says if we're going to follow him, our own lives can't be more important than he is because if we want to follow him, we have to take up our cross and follow him. And everyone knew what that meant. People were crucified by their thousands by the Romans in Palestine and all over the Roman world. If you were a a slave or a a rebel, you know, the Romans showed you who was boss by, by crucifying you. And the only time you saw someone carrying the beam of a cross was when they were on their way to be crucified. It was a sign that they were under sentence of death. Jesus says, you follow me, you pick up your cross to do that. And there are some parts of the world today where people recognise that becoming a Christian 
is a call to martyrdom. It's a call to lay down your life. There are parts of the world today where people know that becoming a Christian will mean rejection by their family. Their family will disown them. Their family might even try and put them to death. So we read these words and think, how can, how can this possibly be true? How can Jesus possibly mean this and say this? In other parts of the world, this is reality for people. Following Jesus will mean that degree of cost. Being a disciple requires unconditional 100% commitment and Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said these words. So the invitation into God's kingdom isn't to be treated lightly as if it were something not very important, as if it didn't matter very much. Jesus said, you wouldn't embark on a major building project without figuring out if you could afford it first, would you? And you know what that's about here at Brighton Road. You wouldn't think, oh, you know, we, we got 5% of it. I'm sure the rest of it will come somewhere along the line. We'll start and it'll be okay. The months and months of planning and figuring it out and working out costings and whether it was affordable and whether it could be done or not. A major building project is not something to be undertaken lightly because you didn't want to demolish the old church, dig a few foundations and then, oh my word, what do we do now? For Brighton Road to be the laughing stock of the town for embarking on something that you couldn't finish. You figured out the cost and did the job. Jesus says, you're going to follow me, figure out the cost. You wouldn't go to war against an enemy unless you'd first carefully calculated that you had a reasonable chance of success. These are life-changing decisions, and Jesus says, following me, the decision to follow me or not, is on a par with those kind of decisions, because the decision to follow Jesus is a life-changing one. And that's because following Jesus entails entering the kingdom of God. And that means saying, God's in charge now. God's in charge of who I am. What I do with my life. My future, my plans, my hopes, my dreams, and my ambitions. I sign them over to him. With my fields and my oxen. And while the man who gets married quickly finds out it's a good idea to do what his wife tells him to, God requires an even higher and greater degree of obedience than that, ladies. So yes, on a scale of importance, the decision about whether or not to accept the kingdom is the most important decision we can ever make. Think about that business deal. Should I invest in that field? Should I buy that car? We'd see they say these days rather than the five yoke of oxen. Should I marry this person? Should I build that tower? Should I follow Jesus? That's the big one. That's challenging because we tend not to see it that way in Britain, really. Story of two men out on the golf course one Sunday morning. They hear church bells in the distance. One says to the other, I suppose we should be in church, really, shouldn't we? Nah, said the other. I couldn't go anyway. My wife's at home in bed. I ought to be looking after her. <laughs> so how high does Jesus rank on your list of priorities? 
And what are we to make of his demand that he come top of the list before anyone and anything else? And what right does he have to make that kind of demand anyway, for goodness sake? Well, he was the man who had nowhere to lay his head. He was the man who was rejected by his family. They thought he was off his head. They thought he was mad. They tried to take him in hand and bring him home. He's the man who was crucified on a cross. That was the price he paid to bring in the kingdom of God. The way he bore our sin. What he did to take upon himself our mortality. Dying our death. And if Jesus hadn't done that, then death would be the end for us all. And of course, when you die, you can't take your fields or your oxen with you. You even have to leave your wife behind. The only thing that goes with you out of this life into the next is Jesus. He's the one who welcomes us into eternal life. And it's that that gives him the right to say, you're going to follow me. You put me first. See, the kingdom is of absolutely overriding overriding importance to Jesus, not just because it would cost him his life, but because without the kingdom, we ourselves are eternally lost as well. All those things that matter so much to us, the possessions, the job, the family, they don't come with us. And in the short term, we can choose to ignore Jesus and concentrate on all those things that matter so much more to us here and now. But they're from the perspective of eternity. It's only the kingdom that matters. It's only Jesus that counts. And so in God's invitation to enter the kingdom, to believe in Jesus, to be baptized, to take up your cross and follow him, how do we respond? How do you feel about putting him in charge of your property, your work, your family life, your future? He claims it all. Just like you can't have salt that doesn't taste of salt, because that would be a contradiction in terms, you can't be a follower of Jesus without putting everything on the line. What is being a Christian really all about? David Watson said it's not about being church members, pew fillers, hymn singers, sermon tasters, Bible readers, even born-again believers or spirit-filled charismatics. It's about being true disciples of Jesus. Taking up our cross, following him, and letting go of everything else. He earned the right to say that by laying down his life for us. So that by putting him first and by following him, we might live for the kingdom of God in this life and live in the kingdom of God in the next the invitation to enter the kingdom, to come to God's party, comes to each one of us personally from Jesus 
with RSVP at the bottom. How are you going to respond?